Well, uh, let's open in prayer. That's probably a good idea. God, we come tonight. Uh, this poor fellow with his lisping, stammering tongue, uh, hoping to glorify you, Lord, by your acts and your movement within my heart. Uh, we pray, Lord, that some would be encouraged, perhaps, by these words. Others might find uh, solace in them. Uh, but, Lord, above all, that you can, your name would be lifted up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. As I picked this verse out <clears throat> earlier, uh, probably a couple of weeks ago, I thought how appropriate it would be if we could sing that song, Overcome, which contains this verse. And, uh, of course, we didn't sing that tonight, but if you were in church today, we did. <laughs> uh, and that wasn't arranged, but I thought it was pretty nifty that we did sing uh, that particular verse. Now, the above verse should not be taken out of context, just as any other verse in Scripture should not be taken out of context. We have to be careful. Uh, <clears throat> this particular area is a prophetic passage, and as such, it uh, may have much imagery and the exact meaning of some of these things can sometimes uh, uh, be very obscure and be very subjective. However, I believe this particular verse, uh, it's quite obvious what it does mean and we can easily understand it uh, perhaps better than a lot of other prophecies. It talks about, and they have conquered him. Who is the him? Uh, we see by reading earlier in the verse that the him is Satan, the accuser of the brother. Uh, and they, who are, who are they? The ones that are conquering. Who are the conquerors? Those are the ones, the accuser is accusing, the accused. That's the saints. That's you and I. <clears throat> and uh, we see that uh, they're able to overcome the dragon by what? By the blood of the lamb. Uh, that's Jesus Christ's sacrifice in their place. And they, they uh, overcame the penalty of death by this. Then it goes on to say that, uh, of course, we do that by his imputing his righteousness to us, and our sin goes and is imputed to the Lamb. However, they're also able to conquer because of the power of their testimony. I believe that means that they can uh, defeat Satan here on this earth also as they're accused. And we can conclude that our testimony is indeed important and carries a lot of weight. Now, just what is a testimony? In a court of law, a person is called to testify or relate a truthful uh, recount of an event, an experience, or perhaps some knowledge that he has. And it's uh, relating truth from one's own perspective. That's basically what a testimony is. Now, several people testifying about the same event will have variations in details, just as we have various testimonies about what God has done. Uh, and that makes the sum of testimonies very believable. We see that in uh, the uh, gospel books uh, in the New Testament, that we have various testimonies given by the men that wrote them. They vary in details, but that just adds to their veracity. It makes them uh, much more believable. Now, the public testimony of a Christian is relating how God is working in that particular person's life. 
It may contain the history of one's conversion, but not necessarily. Uh, and it's relating what God has done and is doing in that particular person's life. Ideally, we should be able to give a testimony of God working in our lives for each day. Now, a testimony is not the gospel, but it may contain the gospel. Uh, it is not a substitute for the gospel. In other words, you can't uh, give someone your testimony and then specifically say, I, I gave them the gospel. You might have, but it is, remember, it's not a substitute. We're still responsible for spreading the gospel. That's also not a chance for one to make oneself look good. No bragging allowed. It's not a chance to, to uh, outdo another person's testimony. No one-upsmanship. You know how it goes. Well, I, I got saved from worse sin than you did, and it's not, it's not what we're up here for, folks. That's not what it's about. What it's really about is it's about God. It's all about God and not about us. Well, why give a testimony? Well, that should be a normal part of our corporate worship, really. Folks should be able to stand up and, and give a testimony about what God has done. Uh, a lot of times they have just open testimonies, and uh, many times they're very encouraging. Now, it's likely because of this testimony that someone will be encouraged and maybe another will find hope for their situation. But above all, God should be glorified. You know, after all, as we said earlier, it's all about God, it's not about us. I find personal testimonies at men's breakfast to be very encouraging and God-honoring. I love those. God changes hearts. In the book of John, in chapter 10, verse 27, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And over in John 6, 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, with, uh, <clears throat> with the preceding in mind or in view, I'm going to offer the following testimony of what God has done in my life many times by changing my heart. As Chet mentioned earlier in our Sunday school class, uh, we're just now finishing up the book of Genesis. And we, we find in Genesis that a lot of space is given to Jacob, uh, or as God renamed him, Israel. Now, Israel, or Jacob, was obviously God's choice at a very early age. He did not choose Esau, he chose Jacob, and he made it very plain that he chose him. Now, he didn't choose Jacob because Jacob earned God's respect or was a particularly wonderful person. He picked Jacob because he said, I picked Jacob. And that's all we can say about it. <clears throat> there seems to be three major places of residence that Jacob had in his adult life. And we're talking about, not about when he was growing up with Esau and all those sort of things that went on, but when he went out on his own, he lived in three separate uh, in places around uh, his part of the world. The first one was in a place called Padam Haran, or Arams, I should say, sometimes known as Haran, and that's near Mesopotamia. And that was where he was working for Laban. He came, if you remember the story, he came there empty-handed and he left with four wives and much wealth. Then the second place he lived was in Canaan, where he spent many years as a nomadic family leader. And the last place he lived, any length of time in his life, adult life, was in Egypt, where he spent the remaining 17 years of his life. 
Now, one of the commentators uh, that I read somewhat of is, I can't remember his name, but I believe his initials are, uh, let's see, it's, um, his initials are John, J, uh, J, C, John, pardon? <laughs> no. Uh, everybody, you know, J. McGee. <laughs> That's his initials, anyway. <laughs> and he uh, he said that in regards to Jacob and the places where he lived, and many times we can we can relate a, a person's Christian experience to the places also. Uh, he said that uh, in uh, in Canaan, or excuse me, in Padam Aram, he was God's man, but he was living in the flesh. Oh. And when he went to Canaan and got through his wrestling match, uh, he was God's man fighting in his own strength. And finally, at the end of his life, when he went to Egypt, he became God's man walking by faith. You know, this, uh, perhaps I can apply this to my life. Maybe I've lived in those places myself. Well, let's look at Jerry living in the flesh and find out what goes on there. Now, I want to back up and say that when we say that Jacob was walking by faith in the last part of his life, this doesn't mean he arrived and he was on some uh, spiritual hill that uh, was unapproachable and this sort of thing. It just meant his methodology had changed. He saw life differently. He was still making mistakes, but he was growing, and the way he lived life was differently. So when you're walking by faith, it doesn't mean that you're, you're the most pious person on, this, on the face of the earth. It just means that you've found out the way that works. <clears throat> so at about the age of eight, I went with my parents to an evangelistic meeting in the Denver Auditorium. That's where I was raised, in Denver. And I believe that the guy that was preaching the service was a fellow by the name of Hyman Appleman. And he, uh, I, I think before that time, my parents had, had started going to church and Sunday school a lot, so I was beginning to get immersed in things. Now, the message that was, was preached that night seemed like it was pointed directly at me, and I desired to go forward. However, many people around me thought I was, no, you can't let that, that young kid go by himself, you know, he, that, he's way too young. <clears throat> but what I had learned was that after that message, I understood the only way to find salvation was not by my, uh, my uh, efforts or behavior, but to take Jesus' sacrifice for sin as my own. I would take his righteousness, and he would take my sin. Then he rose again to life and would uh, <clears throat> raise me to life everlasting also. So that was when I became God's man, I believe, at that point. Now, uh, I grew up going to Sunday school and church and youth meetings and these sort of things, and somewhere in my high school years, I kind of began to wander a little bit. I got the idea of, oh, I can direct my own life. I'm in charge of all this. You know, I, don't, I can do fine. I'm doing great. <clears throat> uh, after all, I mean, I've got a fire insurance policy in my back pocket. Uh, if you know what that indicate by that, it means that I've been saved, and so I don't have to worry about the eternal fires 
that's kind of the, a euphemism for that, is uh, I'm okay and I'll be fine with it. <clears throat> now, one of the things that I detest is listening to that song, My Way. <laughs> I mean, the music is great and the, and the, the voice we hear is all good, but the, the words in it are just as anti-biblical as they can be. I did it my way, yeah. <laughs> this is this is what happens when you do it your way. We're about to find out. <clears throat> uh, now, God had given me a natural interest in and a flair for things both mechanical and electrical. During high school, I took uh, engineering prep courses, and at the end of my uh, first semester of college, however, I decided I'd had enough of math problems. Uh, I will join the Navy and fend for myself. I can do fine. <clears throat> I, I desired at that time to get into aviation electronics, airplanes and that sort of thing, and the electronics involved in them. I thought that was a great thing to get into. And so I did, uh, excelling in the, some of the Navy training. Now, you got to remember in those days, electronic training uh, was a, about a year's worth after you got out of boot camp. Uh, a, lot, a lot of eight hours a day, uh, you know, five days a week, a lot of, a lot of training. Well, soon I found myself as an aviation electronics technician, and I was sent to a reconnaissance squadron that was based in Japan. And I found being electronic tech good. Oh, that was great stuff. And I soon uh, began to excel. Now, the only way uh, I, could, I could get into a flight crew, however, being assigned to uh, one of these squadrons, was uh, since I was in the communications and navigation shop, was to learn Morse code, so I did, uh, kind of on my own, and I began to uh, uh, fly as a sub, as the second radio operator. Eventually, I became a first operator and was uh, had my own position in a specific crew. The kind of planes that we flew, uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing, at the time we call them they were called WV2s. W for early warning, V for Lockheed as a manufacturer, and two being the, the, the secondary. The, the commercial version of that was a super constellation. Had three tails on it. The military version was eventually changed to EC-121. Uh, it had huge big radar domes all over it. Uh, it was a very ugly looking thing. Some folks called it a pregnant guppy. <laughs> now, uh, I'm doing great. Uh, I'm doing it all on my own. The things are going great. While I was in the, the country of Japan for many, several years, I met a Japanese girl. Uh, I got married. It wasn't really quick because to do it the right way, you have to go through all the government forms or else she's not going to get in the, back into the country with you. But uh, we eventually got married uh, and then uh, I had a child. Now, who, who, anybody in here know where a place called Camp Zama is? Camp Zama has an army hospital. Nobody's heard of Camp Zama? Must be somebody in here. Okay, <laughs> I got a hand back there. Uh, anybody ever been to Camp Zama? Another hand. <laughs> Uh, anybody born in Camp Zama Army Hospital? There's another hand. Uh, I, ordinarily, I would have had two hands because I happen to know uh, a 
another brother in here, that, uh, that Byron, uh, was born at the same hospital. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> the, the person raising their hand back there is, is, is my child that was born there. <clears throat> well, uh, having extended my enlistment once involuntarily over the Cuba crisis and then twice voluntarily, uh, several times, uh, we eventually came back and settled in the United States, still in the Navy, and I wound up after a, a quick stint uh, up at Alameda Naval Air Station. Uh, the squadron moved, or I was assigned to, and we went down to Moffett Field. And uh, here I am just happily ignoring God and doing it my way. Now, as time went by, I noticed subtle changes began to occur. Um, in Otako, uh, her personality began to change. Uh, something wasn't right. But you never know, you know, uh, am I, I'm wondering, is it just me or is it is something going on here? And of course, there are a lot of influences with a person changing cultures, changing countries, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, a lot of different things. And I didn't know what was going on, but it was not do, doing too well. But some friends uh, warned me. Some of her friends, some of my friends, some of the neighbors said, something's going on here. Uh, there's something uh, amiss. This is not right. She's very detached and became quite paranoid. Everybody was out to get her. Uh, and this went on for some time, and uh, I have to admit to you, this is probably the most stressful period of my entire life, uh, tied up in knots, because I was ignoring who I should have gone to for help. <clears throat> which was the Lord. And uh, eventually, with some help from neighbors and friends, we, uh, I managed to get her physically over to a state mental uh, uh, facility, and they immediately decided that they should probably get her into treatment. And she went into treatment, and during that time, uh, there were some pretty drastic things they did in those days. I believe she had a lot of electroshock therapy, uh, which makes one forgetful, but it actually worked. Uh, within a, a several months, uh, she was uh, released and probably as well adjusted as I have ever seen her. Uh, she was able to interact on a, a personal basis, uh, seemed to have everything under control. It was just great. That was the first thing that was obvious when she was released. The second thing was that she was pregnant. <clears throat> hmm. Now, as uh, the time came for my son to be born, everything was still rolling along pretty well. And then my son, Fred, he was born, happened to be on my birthday, and he was a little early, and it was pretty quick. We just barely got to the hospital in time. <clears throat> and uh, as I was signing the birth certificate, I discovered that, hey, Today's my birthday. So yes, my son was born on my birthday. <laughs> well, within a few days of his birth, however, uh, she's right back to where she was uh, pre-treatment status, uh, right downhill, just bang, just gone. Uh, stress is back, anxiety's back, all, everything that was, was wrong before is back. After some period of time, I think it was about two months of this, my mother came out from, uh, from Colorado and to stay with us, and she immediately said, you gotta do something, you know, she needs help. So I was able to get her back into treatment again, 
And then they sent my two sons off, or my two children off to Colorado. Uh, my mother said, oh, we will take care of them until uh, she's released. Well, <clears throat> the second time around with the treatment, never did quite get her back to the same place she was to begin with. It didn't quite happen. Uh, so they released her uh, after a couple of months, and then uh, the, ch the children returned back to us. I think I went and got them and flew, them, flew back with them, and uh, we started uh, having a family life again, hopefully. And I told her, I says, you know, we're going to make this work. There's up days and there's down days, and, you know, we're not right where you were, but uh, we, can, we can solve this. We can get, we can get through this. Well, we will make this work. You know, I, know, I realize you're having a down day today, and yesterday was a pretty good day, and tomorrow we don't know what it will be, but we'll, we'll get through this. We can, we, can, we can make it. It will happen. What I'm basically saying is I can handle this. I can do this. I don't need any outside intervention. Well, on the morning of January 3rd, 1966, I set off for work confident because we'd had a discussion the night before that we were... We're going to get through this thing okay. In fact, she seemed a little better off that morning when I left than I had than most mornings. Uh, I went to work at Moffett Field, uh, at my normal job out there. When I arrived home that evening, I found the front door was slightly open. And there was a bit of disarray in the living room. And I, I didn't see or hear any of the kids. So I found Fred, he was just a few months old, lying in his crib. He looked like he was all right, but he seemed to be a little bit on the groggy side, but he wasn't crying. Uh, so I couldn't figure out where Sandy was. She's about two and a half by this time. And so I went out back through the front door and around to the backyard. Got to realize that this was a Navy housing in the city of Sunnyvale, and all the backyards were connected, so there weren't any fences back there. Well, there she is out in the back just running around having a good old time. And I said, well, no, come on in the house, you know. Uh, <clears throat> got back in the house, and, and, and I said, uh, where's Mommy? And she said, she's in the kitchen. Oh, okay. So I went into the kitchen and discovered that during the day, she had hung herself. Well, so much for being able to handle this situation. My life has changed drastically at this point. One life is gone. Two little lives are without a mother, and two grandparents will soon become full-time caretakers and parents. The two children were taken to Denver, and uh, some five months later when my present enlistment expired, I joined them there, and from this point on, leaving God out of the equation does not seem like the way to go. <clears throat> Jerry is done living in the flesh. I re-engaged in church and ministries, and I was hired by a growing computer company, and after some training, returned to Denver. Uh, then I was uh, <clears throat> doing what I excelled at, uh, troubleshooting uh, and that sort of thing, and it was, it was just a, getting around pretty good. I was involved in a lot of things at church, and one of the things I got involved in was the church bowling league. <clears throat> and... I was placed on a team with a man and his, and, and his wife who frequently talked about uh, their teacher daughter out in California. And, oh yeah, I remember her from high school, uh, kind of vaguely. 
And then uh, one day, teacher Elaine came to Denver for Christmas to visit her parents. And she subbed for a missing person or bowler on our team. And the rest is history. <laughs> but there's more than that must be said here. Uh, a few weeks prior to our meeting in the bowling alley, a funny thing had happened. Not that funny after all, it was pretty good. I had prayed. I had told God that my kids needed a mama, I needed a wife and companion, my parents needed some relief, and this was a choice that I did not trust myself to make. Uh, I told God, you know better than I do what I need. Just give me enough sense to recognize your choice. A couple weeks later, boing, there she is. <laughs> God answers prayer. But now what we have is Jerry fighting in his own strength, like Jacob. Spent several years of doing that. <clears throat> Another turning point occurred as I encountered a crisis in my work life. Uh, this is an area that was all mine. I can do this. I don't need any help. <clears throat> I had a lengthy list of accomplishments and, and a reputation for all things technical and, uh, and hard work, long hours didn't scare me. But over the years, as the computer industry changed, large machinery uh, fell out of favor. And I survived a lot of downsizing. The company I started working for, Control Data Corporation, uh, had a peak employment at one time of 65,000. At one point, the part of the company that retained the name Control Data had less than 20 people in it. Uh, there were other parts of it. But anyway, incidentally, if it was worth anything, uh, the company changed names and was bought out and now is what's left of the division I was in is now called BT Federal and I still work for them. <clears throat> 52 years. <laughs> well, <clears throat> because of these downsizing or these changes in the computer industry, uh, things began to get a little rough trying to sell big machinery. So. We were still maintaining big machines, which is not the part I was on, uh, but trying to sell new ones wasn't going over real well. So the company decided to get into some other things and they began to do uh, installations of networks, primarily in commercial applications. Uh, we got some big contracts nationwide and we were able to glue things together. We did a, a big Mervyn's project, we did a Target project, and then we decided we would take on a Sears project they actually hired three companies to do it, and ours had the bulk of them, and then at that time, there was something like 800 Sears stores that had to be done across the country, and we were doing probably 550 of them. And I, you, I, would, I was a team leader, yeah, yay for me. Now this is, this is not work for the lighthearted, uh, <clears throat> or for the tenderhearted, because it's a lot of physical work involved in, in putting in networking and, uh, and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, bless you. <laughs> uh, but I, I could handle anything. I knew I could do it all because it was just all me. Now, some of these tasks we had were very long and arduous. Uh, it got to the point where I was got the end of the part of the schedule where I had, had gotten three big stores to do in one week in a local area with a, with a crew that would come in and help out. Unfortunately, the crew leader had to do a lot of pre-work. And that might involve 30 hours, 36 hours in a store. 
30 hours actually doing the work and six hours of off time before he hit the next door. And then, you know, if you start adding this up, it doesn't come out right. There's not enough time in a day to do this. And I, I physically and mentally came apart. I could not do this. Uh, I couldn't get out of my truck when I drove into a Sears parking lot. I was just frozen with anxiety. Uh, I backed off and offered to quit, and they said, take two weeks off and do something. Well, I took two weeks off of soul searching is what I did. Did a lot of crying, did a lot of praying, and I did a lot of soul searching. And I decided I can't do this in my own strength. And I believe at that point is when I started to walk by faith. And there were other crises that came up after that. Don't have time to explain to some of them, but I could, where I handled them differently. I didn't do it the same way that I tried to so many times before. Uh, the one that occurred since we've been here in this church was when my sweet wife uh, had to have her brain surgically <laughs> tinkered with. Uh, and I don't have time to go into that one, but uh, anyway, we had a lot of stress. It was very hard to do, but you have to understand that we just approached it differently. Uh, we did, we did, went to the Lord with it and said, we don't understand what's going on. We don't know uh, what the outcome will be, but we do know we have the assurance that whatever it is, God will take care of us. It is his will, and he has the plan. <clears throat> so my point of view here is that, just like Jacob, I've been in three different countries. And now I hope that I'm in Egypt, <laughs> walking by faith, not having said, said, said that I'm arrived, but not at all. I still got lot, lots of troubles and lots of problems. I, my methodology is different. I don't look at things the same way I used to. So next week you have to put up with me again. Uh, we'll see what happens then. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for the opportunity to show what you, you do, how you operate, and Lord, how you take care of your people. God, thank you for loving someone who's basically boneheaded, just didn't get it the first few times. Lord, you did not give up on me. You will not give up on these folks here. You will not give up on anyone that you have chosen for your own. Your, your sheep hear your voice, and they follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.